0: And so we're going to be uh, going through this. We, we talk, we're talking about the plan. Let me give you a, a, a picture that I had in my mind. Uh, my oldest daughter, I don't know if you know this, is getting married in a few months. Well, she was living in Pittsburgh. She's moved home to try to save some money. She's like a gym rat, though. And so one morning, she's getting ready to go to the, the gym. And I, I, I talked to her. About, Where are you going, Lauren? She says, well, I'm, I'm going to my class. I said, well, what's the name of your class? She says, well, it's at the gym. It's, it's, it's called Boot Camp. I said, ooh, that doesn't sound like a good class. And she says, no, no, it's not a fun class, but it's a good class. I said, now, what possessed you to, to sign up for a class called Boot Camp, for crying out loud? She said, well, I wanted to get in shape, but I really wasn't sure how. And so I went to the gym. I figured I needed to do that. I looked at all this stuff. And I thought, okay, I probably—I wonder if I could walk on that thing for a while so I'd get on it and walk for a while, and then I wasn't sure how long. Okay, it's time, I think, and so I got off, and then I looked around, and oh, that machine looks kind of fun, and so I'll get on it. I kind of did those things for a little bit, and okay, that was good. What else should I do? And I'll go try that machine and do this kind of thing for a while, and okay, all right, I guess I'm done. And she said it wasn't really going very well. But what Boot Camp did for me, she said, is it gave me a plan so now I know exactly what I'm supposed to do, and when she went through all of her, all of her progress, and I think the Apostle Paul would agree with Lauren that if you want to move ahead, you need a plan. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy four seven and eight, he says, I "Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness." Look what he says. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Uh, uh, I think you could inject. We see where it says, for while bodily training is of some value, I think we could put all of our plans right in that little phrase. For for example, we could say that while financial planning is of some value, while retirement planning is of some value, I think the Apostle Paul would say that while educational planning and while career planning is of some value, says there's something so much bigger. And that, that's training yourself a plan for godliness. He he says that that godliness is not just a heaven thing one day. It has an impact here on this earth. And let me tell you, you want a spouse who is godly. You want a spouse who is godly. You want a parent who is godly. You want a boss who is godly, don't you? Godliness, let me give you the picture in the Bible of what godliness looks like. Godliness looks like love, love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self control can you imagine can you imagine a spouse who is 100% pure love no self love pure love no no dysfunctional they are self love they are they are pure joy no no um, hyper pessimistic Eeyore, always self pity stuff none of, none of that pure joy not not fakey joy not denying reality joy but pure joy pure Peace, not freaking out over everything that they shouldn't be freaking about someone who is kind not mean don't you want this with your boss do not you want this with your friends somebody who is gentle somebody who is when it says good it's, just, it's, it's pure they're, they're not putting on airs they're not trying to manipulate their image they're 100% authentic they're faithful to God they're faithful to you that's godliness Paul says it doesn't get better than that and so, so problem is, we don't have time for a plan for godliness because we've got our retirement plan and our educational plan and our plan for our kids and our plan for our kids' education, and we got so many plans on the secondary level that take all of our time and energy. That who's got time for this one? And this is what Paul would say. I think he would say when you when you when you exalt those secondary things to ultimate things, that's idolatry. And so when you put those things above your quest for godliness, uh, that's idolatry. And so, so the, the the idea is a plan for, for godliness because we don't want to have a plan for godliness like my daughter's when she went to the gym initially. Uh, maybe I'll do some of that stuff over there. Uh, okay, I'm not sure how much, well, but that's good. Let me uh, Maybe I'll serve a little bit and do some... Maybe that's, that's not the goal. So the plan is for godliness for 2019. What will it look like? And so we mentioned that there are, are, there are three things. There are probably multiple things that you could add beyond this, but there are at least three basic things that we've been talking about. First one we said we have, we have a need to weed and that has to be part of your plan. And, and we would say with that weeding as in weeding the garden, look deep into your soul and find those things that are Toxic. Those things that are, that are destroying the, the environment. The godliness, godliness cannot grow as long as that thing is there. It's got to come out. We've got things that are occupying space, the, the, the taking up resources that need to move out. And then we said that there's a need that we have to feed. And this is what I want you to pitch in your mind like a, a triangle, right? And, and uh, you've got the need to weed. And you've got the need to feed. We said these two go together in this way. Weed, a biblical word for to weed is to repent, and to repent means. Stay with me. I'm a little technical, but stay with me. It means to, to uh, turn around to go once. Do do a do a one sixty. So what it is a one eighty. And so what it is. Is it's uh you're going through life, you're cruising through life, and you are living yourself, or maybe other people are living for you or through you, or your life's out of control, whatever. But then one day you realize there really is a God. And Jesus really is his son, and he really did send his son two thousand years ago. And when Jesus was really dying on the cross, God the Father reached into the future and grabbed my real sin and put it on Jesus. And then he really rose. He died for my sin that I could have a relationship with. that. And it dawns on you. you. Maybe you've heard this a million times. Maybe never before. But it dawns on you. This is real. And, and you get on your knees. And you, you, you confess your sin to God. And you surrender your life. That's repentance, Right? But but sometimes it's the only time a believer has repented, but that ought not to be, because repentance is like a daily activity for a believer. And the bottom line is this, let me tell you, my life and your life is kind of like a bag, and inside the bag we've got all kinds of pieces. And some of them are twisted and some of them are broken and our parents packed part of it and bad things that have happened to us, that we got packed in there. And stupid decisions we've made, that got packed in there. And things we've heard from the biology teacher in 8th grade, that got packed in there. And just all kinds of stuff that we're just a hot mess. We don't know. We're blind to a lot of this stuff and we like it. It's our life and we'll fight someone if they try to point any of this stuff out. But it's kind of broken, hot mess stuff. But as we're... In God's word, what will happen is the Holy Spirit will put his finger on something that's in my bag of stuff that's broken or twisted or missing that I was blind to. And I'll go, oh, I can't believe I've been so arrogant or I can't believe I say those kind of things or I can't believe I act like that or do this or think this. And then I've got to weed that out. And, and sometimes it's immediate, sometimes it's a process, but that's got to go. That's, I'm pulling that one out. And then as I'm in God's word, Holy Spirit points out something else. It's like, oh, I can't believe that was part of my... I guess I always thought. And we got to weed that one out. And as we're doing that, our horizontal life is starting to look more like love, joy, peace, patience. Kind of, you know, it's starting to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. The need to weed and the need to feed go hand in hand. But there's a third need. And it's really, really, really important because this one's kind of like the foundation. And that is the need to plead. Now, some would say the need to intercede, but I'm going to say the need to plead. I like that one better. This This is why. If you just have the need to feed... And you're going to get in God's word and you're going to change your life accordingly and you're going to really work hard to get... First of all, it's going to be very hard and it's going to be no fun in that at all, let me tell you. But you will end up being a legalist or a moralist. That's what you'll do uh, if if you don't have that relationship a- aspect. If, in fact, these, these all three go together, if you've got the, I'm going to feed on God's word and I'm going to pray but I'm really not interested in changing my life, then you know what that person is? That person's a hypocrite okay you don't you don't want you don't want that or if you just got the i'm going to try to change my life and i'm going to be in touch with my spirituality but you're blowing off the word of god that person is a cultist that's a bad that's one probably the worst of the three all three working together but you can't the the plead part the prayer part it's not it's not optional it's it's a it is the relationship with our god now, it can turn into an empty religious activity. And for probably many of us, it has at one time or another. And it's, it can be complex because relationships are complex. It's our relationship with God. But, but it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a challenge, prayer is. Matter of, matter of fact, you know, if you're struggling trying to figure out how, how to pray... We can do what, what our people in our culture do. They can go to our, our mentor, Amazon, and ask them, Amazon, would you show me some, some, give me some guidance on how to pray? And they'll do it. Thousands of titles in, in Amazon on prayer. Let me give you just a few of them. You can, you can get the power of prayer, real power of prayer, more power in prayer, power prayers, 90 days of power prayer. You can get the necessity of prayer, the essentials of prayer, intercessory prayers, the prayers that avail much, prayers that rout demons, the answered prayer, when prayers aren't answered, breakthrough prayers, life-changing Bible prayers, prayer that works, desperate prayers. You can get 21 prayers of thanksgiving, 31 prayers for my future husband, 40 prayers for my husband. Isn't that interesting? We're not going (laughs) to... You marry the slob and then you realize you gotta pray a lot more for him. 50 prayers that change the world, 60 days of prayer, 99 prayers your church needs, 211 powerful night prayers that will take your life to the next level. 220 powerful warfare and night prayers for protection, financial prosperity, and intelligence. I need that one. 365 days of angel prayers. You've got my morning prayer, the Daniel prayer, Pamela's prayer, prayers to Mary, the prayer of Jabez, confessions of a prayer, slacker. You've got the book of common prayer and the book of uncommon prayer. And if, in fact, you need to spruce up your prayer life with stuff, that's not a big deal. You've got praying the rosary, the Tibetan prayer wheel, Anglican prayer beads, a book of prayer, The prayer box, the prayer shawl, St. Augustine's prayer book, the Dolly Parton prayer candle, the handmade blessed Christian Orthodox Greek Kumbaskani prayer rope We've got it all. And if you need theology on prayer and you're not interested in reading, you just want to listen, we'll get on the radio, man, Bon Jovi or Garth Brooks or Madonna or Iron Maiden, where they will let you know their understanding of prayer. You got no wonder we're confused, right, about prayer. And I think sometimes we can look, it's just too big, and be confused, therefore we're not going to do it. But I think there's another issue, an underlying issue that's primary to that. And that is our unbelief. Can I say that? Our unbelief. And when we're kids, we're little kids, we prayed, right? But then we grew up. And maybe we had a bout with some unanswered prayer. And we prayed for something, we were sure, and we really needed, that we wanted this, and this was important. And of course God would want this, but he didn't come through. Now this is not a message on on unanswered prayer, which is a major issue, right? Certainly should be addressed at some point. But we know in our heart it can't really work that way otherwise God's a genie, right? We're just going to get on our knees and every single time we ask for something, God's going to give it to us. I mean, everybody's praying, right? Nobody's ever not praying. Everyone's praying at that point because we're just using God. We know that that's not the way it can be. But, it, but it's, it's, it's rocked our faith, maybe. It has taken away our confidence to pray. God's going to do what he's going to do. And you know what? Uh, whether I pray or not, I'm not so sure it makes any kind of difference whatsoever. And so... I don't need to waste my time. We don't really say it that way, but practically, that's how we, we live it out. Or maybe we look at our heart and our soul and we go, "I'm not ready to pray." Um, if I was God, I would not be listening to me. I need to clean some stuff up, and then when I get my act together and get a little bit better, see, that's when I'll. That's I got. I'll I'll get there, but it's not 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 today. Or, or or maybe we, we, we start to pray, and all of a sudden our sin kind of kind of overwhelms us or our our, we're confused, and we're just focusing on our smallness of, of faith, our ineptness, our inability to pray. We listen to other people pray, and they've got a prayer language, man, and they've got prayer vocabulary, and, and they've got to understand the Bible. They're quoting stuff I never heard of before, and they've got their theology down, and, and I'm going, I'm not, I'm just not, you've got to be like a senior saint person to pray. I'm not, I'm not going to pray. That's not, not me. Someone else can, can do that. We all kind of get there sometimes. And the, the problem is the enemy uses that to almost eradicate that bottom line. We're just going to feed and weed, but we're not going to really spend much time on the plead thing. We'll just have to take care of that later. But again, if we remove that, we've got a legalistic, hard structure that Jesus doesn't mean to be. So let me, let me, let me throw a proposal out, and that's this. That it is not the bigness of your faith. But it's the bigness of the one your faith is in. Okay? Matthew chapter 8. Turn with me. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Let's look at a a couple of of case studies here. Verse 5. It says, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord. My servant is laying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, centurions were the backbone of the uh, Roman army, not like their higher-ranking officials. The the centurions were actually in the foxholes, as it were. They were the first to lead their guys into the battle and the the last to, to come out. So the centurions were kind of honored in a sense, and centurions hated the conquered peoples because the conquered peoples killed some of their men and tried to kill them and so there was this great animosity and seldom did you ever see a centurion treat a conquered person with respect especially when you got the kind of animosity you do between the Jewish people and the Romans but look at this centurion he comes to Jesus conquered Jewish person who's a carpenter not even on the Sanhedrin and and he... He praises and he lets him know that that Jesus is so lofty that his home, the centurion's home, is not even worthy of him. That had to get Jesus' attention, right? And then he uses an illustration that is uh, from his own life, kind of likens himself to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I too am a man under authority. And I say to this person, go. And I say to this person, come. And I say to this servant over here, do this thing, make it happen. And it all happens. Because, he says, because, this is the deal, I realize that the bottom line just happens to be uh, Caesar. And Caesar's desk is where the buck stops. And Caesar's the main guy. But when I, a centurion, represents caesar when i when i speak for caesar to my people when i represent caesar's vision and caesar's dreams and caesar's goals then when i speak such to my people it's like caesar himself is speaking and for one of my men to disobey me it's like for them to disobey the emperor himself he says now i've been looking at you jesus and and i know that I represent lowly Rome, but you, oh, something so much bigger. You represent to us God. And and our empire is what it is, but you represent God, everything, everybody, me, everything. And so my servants will come and go, and so will, for you, sickness and disease and demons, just say the word. He nails it. This, This centurion Understands, understands Jesus' identity, which is probably why Jesus is odd with this guy, right? Only twice in the text it says that Jesus marvels in the Bible. This is one of them. It says, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He says, man, the Jewish people, they've got the Bible. They've got the prophecies for the Messiah. They should understand. They know that all the Old Testament is pointing to me. They should figure it out. They know this. They got it memorized. And then you got this pagan centurion who doesn't have any of that. And while my own people have missed me, this guy is nailing it. How did he figure this out? And and the people were, were wondering. How did Jesus do the miracles he did? Now, some folks said demons. Some folks thought he was using trickery. It was an illusion. He was a carnivorous guy. Uh, a lot of folk were just confused. I don't know how he did that. But the centurion was not confused. He says, no, 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 no. Under the authority of God. So, so, so Jesus notices his great faith. Great faith is, great faith is an a attitude of the heart that, that submits to Jesus. That's great faith. Submits to Jesus because they recognize who Jesus is. And he, he had it. Great faith. And so what's the result of great faith? Verse 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The result of great faith as great stuff. And you might say, well, Mark, that just proves my point. I do not have great faith. And if I did, yeah, maybe great things would happen, but I don't have it. And so I can't imagine anyone has it and does not deny reality. So I'm still, still struggling with all this. My faith is kind of weak. Okay, okay, okay. Case study number two. Chapter 8, verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Now the the parallel passage in Luke, Luke says that when they went out on on the water that day, there were many boats on the water. And all, it's kind of an insignificant thing, but really what he's telling us is that nobody saw this storm coming. I mean, these are not tourists that came in, you know, for, to, to play on the lake for the weekend. No, no, these are guys that live on, on Galilee. These, these fishermen, think of the guys that are in Jesus' boat. Most of them are fishermen. They, they, they could never remember a time when they weren't in the boat. From the time they were little and children, and, and now they were men. They, they were on the Sea of Galilee. They understood it. They had been in storms. They, but they'd never been in a storm like this. Now, commentators will tell you that because the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level, when the hot, moist air rises, it kind of sucks in the cold air from the desert and kind of can churn up the surface water like a cauldron. Yeah, but they would have seen that. But again, they hadn't seen anything like this. And so the picture is these rugged fishermen are kind of like hanging out of the mast and they're trying to bail in the wind and the waves and the rain's pouring down and their little fishing boat is being swamped. But the greatest miracle of this whole story is you got Jesus who's sleeping right now in the boat. And there's no cabin, which means he's in the back of this boat that's being flipped all over. The boat was not very big and it's being flipped all over and it's almost capsized and it's swamping out and the rain is pelting Jesus And he's asleep. He's not pretending to be asleep. He's asleep in the middle of this. But you need to know that this storm was not accidental. They didn't didn't accidentally get out and have this this thing happen. uh, Jesus orchestrated this storm and its intensity. And Jesus taking a nap, you need to know, it's not just coincidental. Can you find me any other scripture that talks about Jesus taking a nap? You don't find that. The fact that it's here lets us know that Jesus is prepping this. He's got something he needs to teach his disciples, something he needs to teach us, and this is like a living parable because these guys that are in the boat with him think they know more than they know. They're, 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 there's some stuff they're missing about who Jesus is, and Jesus needs to bring them face-to-face face with that. Let me just, let me just ask you uh, kind of parenthet- parenthetically might there be aspects of Jesus that you don't know anything about or your knowledge of is kind of shallow or twisted or crooked a little bit? Might there just be that? I think that's so since he's infinite and eternal, probably that's true for all of us, even if we've grown up in the church. Sometimes it's these storms that bring this out. And so we've got this, this, this storm going on, and they, they finally come to him, verse 25, they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing, we just want to let you know, <laughs> we're all going to die here, Jesus, is what they're kind of throwing out to him. And you, you ask, why were these guys following him in the first place, these Jewish guys in the boat with him? If think about this, when they decided to follow Jesus, they were booted from the temple which is the only place you're going to find salvation for these, these Old Testament guys. So being booted from the temple was pretty big. Many of them probably lost their families. They were ostracized. Certainly culture turned its back on them. These guys would suffer substantially physically and with their families in every other way because they decided to get in the boat with Jesus. So why were they in the boat with Jesus in the first place? Because he had told them that I'm the Messiah, the one the Old Testament promised And I'm going to set up my kingdom. And they believed it. I don't know if they thought there would be any storms though. And so this storm comes up. And these disciple guys are saying. Now we know Jesus said this. And promised this. But this storm is pretty big. And this storm is going to just uh, derail the plans. And he said that he was going to build this kingdom. But I think that he's going to be killed along with us. It's just not going to happen. And so, so they're kind of struggling. It's just like us, isn't it? I mean, we, we, we can't get down on them too much because our heart is there. Something bad happens. It's a normal day. It's a good day. Things are going great for us. And all of a sudden, we're blindsided by something. Freaks us out. We run to Jesus in fear. Like some child who's yelling for his dad or mom because of the shadows on his wall. Panicky. And, and if you were to look. Jesus' response. He says, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Notice he kind of like juxtaposed fear and faith, doesn't he? Where fear is. Great faith can't be. What I like about this is he doesn't say, "Why are you afraid, O oh, ye of no faith?" Oh, I like that because they got some faith, not a ton, and it's pretty anemic and it's pathetic. And it's not strong faith, but they got some. And their faith means they know they've got a need, just like the centurion, and they know that Jesus can answer. So they go to him in fear, not like the centurion who didn't. They go to him in fear, but they went to Jesus. Now, what is the result of weak faith? Well, weak faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was great calm. Great calm. The word great is sudden calm, immediate calm, complete, full, full calm. It's, it's not like there were winds, and there were waves, and the little boats, and then Jesus said, hey, cut it out. And it was, and it's like it's pouring rain, and then it started drizzling, and then it got lighter and lighter. It's not that. It was like, and then Jesus says, cut it out. And the waves just gone. I mean, it's like someone flips a switch and suddenly the waves are all gone. And the wind is gone and it's not raining. They're in a different world. And Jesus is standing there dripping wet, staring down his apostles who are standing there dripping wet. And if we followed the passage, they'd be saying, wow, who is this guy? And that's, that's what Jesus is trying to get through to them. His identity so that's where the weak faith you, you don't realize all of who Jesus is, but the result was the same as the result of the strong faith that just it's not the bigness of my faith it's the bigness of my of the one my faith is in, right If you look over in chapter nine verse twenty. You got another case study. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. I wonder, where did she get that from? That's kind of goofy. That's not in Scripture. That's not exactly right. Right. Our theology was just a little bit off here. This would be the same kind of thought that would lead the medieval church to worship, you know, uh, icons. This was the kind of thing you see in Acts 5 when they were hoping the shadow of Peter would touch them as they were lying down. Because then maybe his shadow would heal. Just kind of almost like faith and superstition a little bit. A little bit, not exactly right theology. And if you, you think about the woman though. I mean, uh, she had this issue going on for 12 years. Was there chronic pain with this? I don't know. I don't know. But I tell you, I'm a wimp for pain. And I'm not, I praise God on a chronic pain, but I just get a little bit of pain, and you know, for just a short time. And during that time, am I like thinking about other people and thinking kind thoughts and want to serve others? No way. And so if you've got chronic pain, man, that can do something to your mind. We know that this gal had emotional pain because if she was bleeding from her womb, which is what, most scholars think she would be considered unclean, which means she could not go to the temple tabernacle t- temple for 12 years. She couldn't have been there, which would have cut off her relationship from God. She could her social calendar would have dried up because she could not have people over to her house children anybody else she could not be hanging with folk matter of fact it's illegal for her to be out here in the middle of all these folk especially touching somebody right now uh it tells us in mark five when it gives you the parallel of this story that this gal went to you know urgent care and then she went to Hammett, and then she went to saint vincent's and then she went to cleveland clinic and nobody could help her and they had no insurance and so she had to pay and pay and pay and pay with no help nothing and this is a time when there's no social security. And so this woman is now destitute, no money, nothing to, no one to take care of her. No one can because she's unclean. I mean, desperate stuff. This woman is desperate. Have you ever been that desperate? And her theology maybe isn't exactly all right, but she knows two things. She knows she's got a need and she knows Jesus can take care of it. And so she comes to Jesus. And uh, Jesus, you love, love what, what, what happens Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well, even though her theology was ah, just a little mixed up. Her, 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 Jesus listening to her was not dependent on the pureness of her theology. That's, that's, that's what it says because it's not about the bigness of her faith or the pureness of her faith or the excellence of her faith, but the bigness of the one her faith is in. And verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. That's messianic, so they understand a little bit of who Jesus is. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. So they did, they did believe. Then he touched their eyes saying, According to your faith be it done to you. Now, now it... Probably wasn't according to the quality of your faith, because we'll see in just a second. The quality of their faith was a little bit, ah. and, and so if it meant according to the quality of your faith, may it be done to you. Then maybe just one eye is healed, and the other one's still blind, or maybe they got twenty-sixty vision. You know what I'm saying? Or maybe you know they're going to be hyper nearsighted. There's just something; it's not complete because their faith was a bit struggling. But yet, the healing sure looks like it was was complete. Pure. Now, this gives us some insight into where their faith was at. It says, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. They weren't malicious in their disobedience, but they were pretty disobedient, weren't they? They blew off exactly what he just said, don't do. They went and did it. I'm thinking that Jesus probably knew they were going to be disobedient. And he didn't say to them, listen, 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 listen. I know that disobedience is in your heart. And so you know what? Go straighten out your life. And then come back to me. See, and then I'll take, I'll I'll listen to you. And we think this, you know, I'm, I'm a big mess. And when I get my life figured out and straightened out a little bit, then I'll come to Jesus and see, then maybe he'll listen to me. And if he doesn't answer my prayers, it's only because I'm such a, you know, a bad person. That's, that's the deal. Jesus knows they're going to blow it. He knows they're careless with their faith. And yet he gives 100% healing. Why do you think Jesus would respond to the anemic faith, the impure faith, and the careless faith the same way he does to the great faith? Exact same, no, no less. Why? Why? I mean, he wants us to have great faith. Don't get me wrong. But why? Because it's not about the bigness of my faith. It's about the bigness of the one my faith is in. I was five years old. Five years old. I've got this this picture in my mind. I'm sitting in my living room in Chicago. Uh, My dad is laying on the couch. It's a Saturday afternoon. We're watching combat. This is my dad's favorite show, combat. This World War II, black and white thing. We're watching this. And my dad invites me up in the couch with him to cuddle with him. I think this was the only time in my life my father cuddled with me. He just It's not what he did. But he invited me up. I thought this was a bit strange. But I, was, I thought this was great. So his big arms are around me. And then he says to me, son, do you want your daddy to leave? I said, what? He said, your mommy wants me to pack up all my stuff and leave and not come back. You want your daddy to go? What kind of a stupid question, right? Is that for your six-year-old or five-year-old? I'm going, what? No, daddy, daddy, no, 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 please don't. I just couldn't imagine life without my, my, my daddy, you know? Who's going to cut the grass? Who's going to bring us food? Who's going to protect us and make sure we're safe? You know, life was okay as long as my dad was there. But no, no, no. My dad says, well, you know, we'll see, son. Just go back on the floor and watch combat, you know, kind of thing. So all right, so I, I go sit down to watch combat. But inside, my little world was shaking huge. Well, on, on Monday, I, I, I know my dad always came home around 5.15 p.m. from work. Every, every Monday through Friday, he always did. This was just normal. So after my Speed Racer or Gilligan's Island, whatever in the world I was watching, it was always over at 5, I would get up and go into the bathroom and lock the door and then go kneel by my ceramic altar and pray. Now, now, the fascinating thing, I was five. No one taught me how to pray. No one told me I should pray. No one shared with me 15 different ways to pray. I didn't have the, the 41, 31 ways to pray for your dad who might not be coming home. I didn't have this stuff. But, but I, I prayed, oh, God, would you please let my daddy come home? And I would pray and pray. And I prayed and prayed and prayed until I heard the door open and my dad come in. Then I would say, thank you, God. Get up. Next day, Tuesday, Speed Racer's over. It's 5 o'clock. I'm back in the bathroom, lock the door. I'm down by the toilet. Oh, oh God, thank you for bringing home my daddy yesterday. Please, would you let him come home today? Ooh, please. And I don't know what's going on with my mom. Make my mom not make my daddy leave. And blah, 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 blah. and I would wait till I heard my dad come in. Thank you, God, for letting my daddy come home. Well, it was probably two weeks of this, right? My mom and dad had gotten things all fixed. But they never told me about it. They never said word to me. So every night at 5 o'clock, I'm in the bathroom, and I'm praying, I'm pleading. And you call it whatever you want. I believe God worked through the prayers of a little 5-year-old kid to bring his, his dad home. And, and, you know, I did not know at 5 years I did not know anything about premillennial dispensationalism. I did not know the books of the Bible. I forget Greek and Hebrew. I did not know English, right? I, I, I did not understand uh, any deep theology, any shallow theology. I didn't have a verse memorized, but I knew this. I knew that I had a need. And I knew that God, He could, he could address this. And, and, and at some point, and I don't know when, I, I transferred from the, the ceramic altar to, I, I took my prayer time to just before I went to bed, I would crawl underneath my baby brother's crib. I don't know why I made that my sacred space, but I did, and I prayed, and I, st- I had this bad theology going on at this point, because I'm thinking, okay, God answered the deal with my dad, and so if I don't pray for this, it's just not going to happen, so I was praying for everything, because if I didn't pray for it, something would go wrong, and so I'm praying for everything, and then at some point, I took it from underneath my baby brother's bed to on my knees beside my bed, and and. Probably there until junior high. And then from junior high, I transferred my major prayer time to morning stuff. Still pray at night, but, but major prayer stuff to morning. Um, and I, I, I got I to gotta tell you, there were times through that whole deal where I prayed for big stuff. I mean, big stuff. And I was sure that this is what God should do. And this was right. I could find texts and everything. And God didn't do it. And there was some frustration. And there was some confusion. But I I never thought, well, maybe I should just quit praying. That was never, never part of the deal. Because as long as you keep praying, all that time when you're little, all the way, you're consistent with it... You grow in your understanding of prayer. It's like playing tennis. The more you're doing this and you're in his word and you're, and you're, you're feeding and you're waiting and you're pleading while that's going on, you're maturing in your understanding of prayer. And the whole interceding thing is just an aspect of it, but it's not the only thing and it's not the biggest thing even. But as you're, you're learning to pray and you're learning about who he is, you have to, any plan that's going to lead us to godliness has to incorporate a, a, a plan to, to, Plead, as well as to feed, being God's word, and then weed, which basically apply it. You know, I came here eight years ago. Driving in this morning, it was kind of surreal. I remember when I drove in for my first Sunday morning, right, first sermon. But but it did make me think, you know, where did the time go? It's gone so quick, right? I'm pretty convinced that unless... There's an accident or unless there's some major sudden death thing. If we have to walk through the valley of the shadow, then we'll get there one day and we'll look back and we'll say, Man, what happened to life? It went so quick. Oh man, I can't believe it. When 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 we leave FAC, whether it's soon or when every one of us will leave at some point, right? The only thing, the only thing that's gonna make a difference in, in our our existence, the only our effectiveness for Christ and His kingdom, the only thing that's gonna make a difference there it, it will be to the extent that we have pursued godliness, that when we've pursued a relationship with God. Then, then, then our horizontal. We pursue the vertical. Then our horizontal is shifted and changed. And so I've got to ask you, what is your plan for godliness for this year? If it's like Lawrence going initially going to the gym, well, maybe I'll try this thing. Maybe I'll try that thing. Well, I, I hope that that gives you some sort of psychological satisfaction that you're trying, but you're really not. Okay, this, this is my last Sunday, right? I can tell you these things. You're just really not. For the sake of FAC's future. This is what it's all going to be about. FAC's, if FEC's going to make it or not. It's, not, it's going to be what's happening here. If there's major pursuit of godliness. How can this place not be blessed by him? And people coming to know him. And marriage is fixed. And people understanding their calling and their identity. How can that not happen? If his people... Make their number one pursuit, not a horizontal thing. We got responsibilities, we need to deal with them. But my first responsibility is to pursue godliness. So what is your plan? There's a little card in your bulletin. Just to see, if you have got something else going on, then do it. Do it, do it, do it, do it. But if you're struggling for a plan, maybe that might give you a skeleton of something you might be able to incorporate. I wish we had more time to go over that, but we, we don't. But let me, let me pray for us because, Lord, we're grateful. I'm so grateful for the people who had a plan, people who cared so much about their relationship with you. They were not going to let the, the things of the world, the things of their flesh, the things of hell, blind them to it. They were going to pursue it with everything they had. And because they did, they made an impact on us. You use them, God, to open your word to us, to live it out before us, to give us hope. And We want to be those people. We want to be those people this year. So I pray, Lord, for myself and these guys. By the time 2019 is over, may we, God, be people who have pursued you, people who have sought you with our whole heart. May we reflect you more because we know you more. I would ask that that would be so. And even as we take up this offering now, God, would you use it? Please use it to bring this message to the people here at FAC, the people in Erie, and the people in the world, because you, Jesus, are worthy of that in your name. Amen. Thank you.